Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for this morning is from the Gospel according to St. Luke, the fourth chapter. My dear friends in Christ, did you notice the theme in today's readings? I mean, maybe not so much the, the epistle lesson, that 1 Corinthians reading. We make our way, <coughs> excuse me, a couple of times at each lectionary cycle, we make our way almost completely through one of those books. And 1 Corinthians is one of these books that we're going to read almost the entire thing before we're done with it. And so it doesn't always correlate to both the epistle or to the uh, Old Testament and to the gospel lesson, although it is going to come back in today's sermon. But the, the main idea, if you look at the Old Testament and the gospel lesson, is that the word of God is there. The word of God is important. Now, I want to put the Old Testament lesson into context for you, just in case you don't know. The Israelites had been taken off into captivity in Babylon, somewhere between 50 and 80 years, depending on when they were taken out of the place. They're all out there in exile. And finally, they're allowed to return to Jerusalem. And so when they get there, they see that everything is in ruins. So they begin to rebuild the walls around the city so that they can be safe. And of course, they rebuild the temple. Those are the first two things that people spend their time on. You might think, well, what about shelter and all that? You can live in the walls of cities back then. This is what would happen. So those are the first things. And what they did is as they began to rebuild the temple, they found a copy of God's word. Now you might think, all right, well, what's the big deal with that? The big deal is when they were taken off into exile, they lost everything from the temple. They weren't allowed to take any of it. All of it was taken under the Babylonian rule. And it's not like people had copies of the Bible in their homes. And then they could stuff it into their bags as they were taken off into a foreign land. These people had lost the word of God. And the only way that they were going to be taught the word of God was directly from the Levites, the priests who were taken off into exile with them, that tribe that was there to teach the people. And that's, that's good. It is. I mean, you should be teaching the people the word of God. That's what pastors do today, right? We not only read the word of God to you, but then just like they did there in the Old Testament lesson, they, they read it and then clearly gave the sense of the word to follow it so that you can know what the word of God is saying without any question. And the Levites, they were forced at these times to do all of this in exile. But they didn't have the word of God written down from in front of them. And as they were then excavating this temple and rebuilding it, they found a copy. Everything else had been taken away, but they found a copy of the Word. And that's pretty cool. No wonder the people were weeping. That's really what this is all about. It's not because they heard the law and they were so convicted in their sin, though certainly and hopefully we know that that was the case, but, but they wept because they hadn't heard the Word of God read in so long. I mean, there were literally people there living who had never once heard the Word of God. So you can imagine the people were overjoyed, and not out of grief did they weep, but out of this joy. Now we have in our Gospel lesson, Jesus reading the Word, 
Notice what's been set up in our Old Testament lesson in Nehemiah. They, they kind of showed what would happen to Israel to make sure that the Word of God never would be lost again. They began to make more and more copies of it. And they sent it out into places that they would set up in all of these towns and cities called synagogues. And in these synagogues where the people of God would gather around, someone would get up and they would read a lesson, just like we find here in Nehemiah, and everyone would stand as the lesson was read, and they would remain standing as it was taught. And ultimately, the teacher would sit. It was actually a very common pose for teachers. The teacher would sit down, and all the students would stand up around him. And so you can kind of imagine a few weeks ago when Jesus was the little boy in the temple, when he was 12 years old, he was sitting there. You can imagine a 12-year-old boy just leaning back against the columns, sitting around while all of these older, wiser men are standing there and listening to him. It's a sign of respect when one teaches with authority. And so Jesus, having learned this, having gone to this synagogue since he was young, he comes back to that synagogue, this one that he grew up in. He reads the scripture, the scripture, the scroll, and he sits back down. And that was pretty common. Now, anybody could read. It wasn't like they just had a single pastor. That wasn't how synagogues worked. It didn't have to be a rabbi. It didn't have to be a Pharisee necessarily. It was usually someone who was given an honored place, maybe someone who was wealthy or someone who had uh, given huge gifts or someone who's taking care of the poor. All of a sudden, this, this rabbi who had gone out into all the nation, he's making news all over this land of Israel, comes back to his own hometown. And, and they got to think, well, he's obviously got to be our reader for today. And so Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah. Now, he unrolls the scroll, and he probably didn't read the entire thing, although that was very common. You would read huge swaths of Scripture, right? But Isaiah is a really, really long book, so it's actually divided into sections. He probably doesn't read just the words that we have here today, but a lot of them. And what does Jesus do? He unrolls it. He starts to read to this place about the Messiah. And the people think, well, Jesus is obviously going to be teaching us about this coming Christ. And so he reads this. The Spirit of God is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this is all about the Messiah, and every good Jew knew that this was about the Messiah. And Jesus, you can almost hear, is actually going to put the emphasis on the word me. He has sent me. He has given me. He has put it in my hands to do this. And so he reads this, he rolls up the scroll, he hands it back to the attendant, and he sits back down. This is the equivalent of a mic drop, right? You might have seen these or heard about these, you know, in these musical battles, some kind of rap battle. The, the guy drops lyrics that insults the other person and they're, that they're battling against, and he just holds the mic and he throws it on the ground. It's a statement. It says, like, beat this, right? And so Jesus rolls the scroll, gives it to the attendant, sits down. Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
Now, there's really no question about what he's saying, and the people get it. He's claiming to be the Messiah. Today, he says, as you heard me read this, this has been fulfilled. It's done. You don't need to look for anybody else to do this. I just did it. It's a pretty incredible statement. Jesus is saying that this word of God that you've had for generations is all about me. And everyone in that moment looked at this guy and they all spoke well of him. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Because again, he probably didn't just say what we have written down. He probably said a lot more. But what he did say, that's the important part for us. So we've got to imagine there's more teaching. And Jesus is doing really, really well. No surprise. People are buying what he's selling. But Jesus, knowing the heart of man, and perhaps even using his own divinity to look into their hearts, to see into their minds, he knew exactly what was going to happen next. Because the Messiah that they were waiting for, well, they hoped that he was going to set all things right. Right? I mean, if you're a Jewish person living in the first century under Roman rule, your idea of the Messiah was... Well, pretty much like whatever political party says their candidate for president is going to be for the nation, right? If you don't elect this guy, then the whole nation's going to go to pot. Or we've even heard this in the news recently, right? If, if we don't pass this law, your rights are going to be completely trampled on. Your vote isn't going to count at all. Therefore, make sure your senator knows not to filibuster or to filibuster or whatever it is that either party is telling you to do. That's what the people hoped the Messiah would be. And Jesus knows this. He knows that they want him to be some kind of political Messiah, some savior of the nation. Now, he is the savior of the nation, kind of like what we sing in our Advent hymn, Savior of the Nations Come. But he's not the savior of a nation like a president would save the nation by passing good policies or or condemn it by passing bad policies. That's not what Jesus is about. He is literally coming to save the nation of Israel, to bring them back to their God that they had wandered so far from, to make up for everything they had done, to do it right, and to take them from all the evil that was in their hearts and to give them the righteousness that God would have to give them. That's what he was there for. But that's not what they wanted. And so Jesus says, no doubt you're going to quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. That's not a bad proverb, right? But he's going to point out, using this proverb, that they see him as a part of themselves. They want him to count himself as one of them. And they get this flipped. I mean, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, here's where this comes back, that we are members of one body and that body is of Christ. Not that Christ is a member of us. They have it completely flipped on its head. Because when you count Christ as one of your members, well, the idea is then, when he sees your problem, he's going to do what you want him to do. It's the same thing like when we get a cut or we feel sick or we get injured. We want to be healed, right? Of course we want that. And God does want that too, but he doesn't promise that in this life. 
So they're looking at Jesus and saying, look at us. You are one of us. Heal us. You are Joseph's son. You are a carpenter. You built our houses. You're from Nazareth. We watched you grow up. So look at us and do the deeds that match the beautiful words that you preached. And Jesus looks at them and says, well, here's the deal. You're going to say that, but the reality is when you realize what I'm all about, you're going to reject me. Because no prophet has any honor in his own hometown. When I was training to be a pastor, people in my home congregation, I think maybe more than half serious, they joked about calling me back there. It still makes me uncomfortable today. I was uncomfortable back then. It makes me uncomfortable. Not because I didn't love the people there. I did love the people there. But because these people had seen me grow up. I mean, literally, in the narthex of our church, there's, we have pictures of our history all around. And there's a picture of me, probably about 12 years old, with this really stupid bowl cut that I had in the 90s, parted right down the middle. Of course, this is when I had hair. And I've got another kid in a headlock. Now, we're just goofing around at some youth group thing, but how do you think that would go? With the pastor of a congregation having, being up on the wall, having another person in a headlock. How long do you think it would be before someone came to me and said, well, pastor, you can't say this kind of thing. After all, I watched you. Or, well, pastor, I know you're saying this, but that's not going to work for me. At all, I know who you are. Now, Jesus didn't do stupid things when he was a kid because, of course, he's perfect. But you can imagine that people are going to look at him and and think, well, what kind of authority does he have? I mean, after all, I saw him when he was a baby. I saw him when he was a kid. I know more than him. I'm older than him. Certainly, I've got to be wiser than him. He's just a carpenter. And so Jesus says, no prophet has any honor in his own hometown. And he's right. In fact, they're going to prove that he's right. Because all he's doing is preaching the word. And what happens? Right? What happens? Because of their hardness of heart, there's nothing that he could or even would do for the people who had gathered. And they heard the word of God. They didn't rejoice over the hearing of it. They heard the word of God and they thought, all right, what can we get out of him? And because of that, there was nothing that he could do. It doesn't mean that God didn't want to save them. Certainly he does and did. He was going to forgive their sins. He died for these people. However, it is true that out of the hardness of their own hearts, because of their lack of faith, there would be no sign. There would be no miracle that he could do other than preach the word. And they became so enraged at not getting what they wanted that they took this man that they had watched grow up as a boy to throw him off a cliff and to stone him. That's what stoning was back then. You, you take a person to a cliff, you throw them off the cliff so that their body is broken. Not dead, just broken. And then you find the biggest rocks that you can, and you see who hits the mark the best. That was stoning. And as well you can imagine, most people would not survive such a thing. And this is what they were going to do to Joseph's son. 
This is what they were going to do to Mary's son. And you better believe that as he's in this synagogue, in his own hometown, his mom is going to be there beaming with pride. And they're going to do this to her. Of course they're going to do it to her, right? I mean, they, they, what do they do to Jesus in Jerusalem? As he sets his face toward the cross, didn't they, right in front of Mary, take her son, strip him naked, pierce him onto some wood, lift him up and watch him die, mocking him the entire time that they did it? Of course. But see, it wasn't yet his time, was it? And so Jesus, using the power of his divinity, did not let them kill him. He let them wait to kill him. So what does all this have to do with us? I've already mentioned one aspect where we look at all this political stuff out there. And we think, if only we can get a Republican in office. Or if only we can get a Democrat in office. If only we can get everyone vaccinated. If only everyone would fight against the vaccines. If only, if only, if only, if only. Well, then everything would be fine. How stupid are we? How stupid are we? I mean, it's even worse, I think, when we look at God. And we think, all right, so God is all-powerful. God is loving. What can I get out of him? Which one of us hasn't bargained with God? God, if you're only going to do this, then I'll do this. If you heal this person, then I'll dedicate myself to you. If you only show me a sign, then I'll, I'll give a lot of money to the church. If you only provide for me in this circumstance, I will go out and tell everybody about your love. And even if you did bargain with God, and let's say that God did uphold His end of the bargain, how are you doing with your side of things? I mean, the thing is, we look at God still today, just as they looked at the Messiah back then, as a God who is going to bring us out of all of our troubles, the, the guy who gives us the desires of our hearts, the guy who is going to take care of our needs. I mean, it's true. God is absolutely going to take care of your needs. But what you think you need is very different than what you need. And so we look at God and we say, all right, you're going to give me this stuff without realizing that God does what he wants to do. You see, we don't get to boss God around. That's what the people of Nazareth didn't realize. They don't get to tell Jesus what to do. They don't get to say, heal us. They don't get to say, make us well. They don't get to say, restore our reputation. They don't get to say, you're going to do this or else. They don't even get to say when it is that Jesus dies. Jesus takes all of that away from them. All of it. And so it is that Jesus does what he wants. He leaves them. He goes on in the rest of his ministry until finally it is time for him to lay his life down. He says, no one takes my life from me unless first I lay it down. His time. His means. His way. We so often think that it's on us. It's our time. The means that we want. The way that we want. That's not how God works. God gives us what He wants. And what He wants is to give us what we need. 
I mean, He does. He takes care of us in so many ways. The, the, the fact that our hearts are still beating, the fact that we have air to breathe, the fact that most of us have food on our tables. I'm guessing all of us do. The fact that all of us have a home to go to. The fact that all of us have some kind of transportation to get here to hear the Word of God. The fact that we have friends. The fact that we have family. I mean, all of these things, God gives them to us. They're all gifts from Him. And with all of His goodness given to us, with all of it in our laps, now we can hear this Word of Jesus. You are forgiven from all of the horrible expectations you have of God. For all these weird expectations you have of Jesus. He died to forgive sins. In that sin of thinking too much of yourself, that's forgiven too. He died to turn your heart from what you can get into what He is giving you. It gives you a law. Now last week we talked very much about the supper. How Jesus comes to us in His body and His blood and how He puts His word of promise in and with this supper. But He puts it not just in the supper, He's put it in the waters of baptism and He's put it in the word itself. Where the word is preached or where the word is read, where the word is taught, the word actually does something to you, which is to give you faith, to convict you of your sins, and ultimately to forgive you of your sins, to show you that you are beloved of God and that indeed you've been saved through the cross of Christ. The Word does something to you. It's not just something that happens around you, but something that happens to you, something that happens in you, that Jesus is working on you, that He is passing through you to point you to Himself. That's what the Word of God does. It takes your hard heart, it takes your selfish thoughts, and it turns you to thoughts of God and of others. And so now it is that we approach God, not in all of these things that He can do, that we want Him to do, but we look to God first, and we recognize what it is that He's done for us, to us, in us, and with us. And in this, we find that the Word of God has done exactly what it's promised to do. Hear again the words of Isaiah. And think about where you sit in this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon Jesus, because He has anointed Jesus to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent Jesus to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All right, now I'm going to show you where you find yourself in here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon Christ and His Word because He has anointed this Word to proclaim the good news to you who are poor. He has sent Jesus to proclaim liberty to you who are captive to sin. To recover the sight of you who are blinded by sin and unbelief. And to set at liberty you who are oppressed by sin, death, and the devil. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to you who struggle, who doubt, who sin. If I can be so bold to claim Jesus' words, I'm going to say this today. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Because indeed, Christ has done these things to you. 
He has freed you by his word through that yoke of oppression, those chains of slavery that bind us down into sin and death and the devil. And he's given us life. He's given us the favor of God. He's given us liberty and freedom and recovery of sight. And we're going to look to him who died upon the cross and be brought and be, excuse me, be brought back out of our selfish ambition into a life of service and thankfulness. The word of God is fulfilled in your hearing today. Hear it. Believe it. Let your hearts be turned. Look to God and repent of all your sin and find today and every day the forgiveness of sins from Christ upon that cross, the one who laid his life down for you that you might be with him forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Now may the peace of God which passes all human understanding guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.